0: Turn to James chapter 2. We are um, continuing our series, our summer series called All In uh, from James chapter 2. And uh, let me give you a, a couple of thoughts as you're turning there. The very last Sunday in the uh, month of July will be the final message in this series uh, called All In. We'll be looking at the last half of James chapter 5. And that's the, uh, pa- that, that's the passage that we pick up, the teaching uh, from the New Testament that says, if any among you are sick, uh, let them call for the elders of the church, anoint with oil, <clears throat> and the prayer of uh, the righteous man uh, is effective and will heal the sick. The, that Greek word for sick there is broader than physical sickness. It also means financial need, and it also means uh, weakness uh, or struggle. And so... We just want to simply uh, obey. We want to simply do what the Bible says. So I, I want to ask you to pray with me about that s- specific Sunday. As we share from that passage, we're going to spend a lot of time that morning just praying for people with needs. And so if you know someone that has a need in one of those areas or a need, it would be a great day for you to say, hey, look, our church is just going to be praying for people with needs. I'm not going to embarrass you i can going to ask you to do anything weird. We're just, we just want to pray for you. And, uh, man, I'd love for you to come with me that day. It will be a really good day uh, for us to pray. So I want to ask you to join us specifically uh, that morning um, and pray, pray specifically about that morning that God will, in His own miraculous love, just come and touch and meet people where they are and meet needs and that we will see lives changed uh, from that that very simple thing that morning. So I want to ask you to join us for that. As you're in this journey with us through the book of James, I hope that you've taken the opportunity uh, to read through. Um, we have a reading plan online. You can go to our website and you just go to the all in button and uh, you can read along with us. There's a reading schedule. Uh, and there's something that we've been encouraging you to do, a certain way to read the Bible called SOAP. And so I'm going to ask Paul uh, Niven if he'd join me now. And uh, he's going to read his soap for this morning. Basically, basically, what we do, um, soap is just a specific way to read the Bible that helps us, uh, encounter. let me say it this way, it helps us find God in His Word. Just because you read the Bible does not mean that you find God, right? Remember when Jesus met the uh, Pharisees in the New Testament and He said to them, you think that you have life because you study the Scripture? But, but Jesus was right in front of them. And, and even though they had given their entire life to study in Scripture, they couldn't see Him. So this is just a... There's a many ways. This is only one. It's not the way. It's not the best way. It's a way. And so what we basically do is say, uh, here's a way that you can read through the book of James with us. And uh, you can find God and find God's work inside your life. So we ask every week for somebody to come and read their devotion uh, the way that... Um, they read it. So uh, that's Paul today. So Paul, go ahead.
1: Good morning. Uh, The scripture for me was James 2.21. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And the observation I had was James is trying to get me to remember the main point of the story. Don't you see? Don't you remember? God used a no-win situation to help Abraham clarify his faith in God. And the application was, no-win situations are not a cause for despair. No-win situations are opportunities for me to know how deep my faith in God runs. No-win situations help me clarify and quantify my faith in God. Whether I pass or fail, no-win situations should drive me into the presence of God. My prayer was, dear Lord, when my next no-win situation comes up, please remind me that the only thing that matters is that I stay true to you. The outcome belongs to you, not me.
0: Wow, isn't that great? Give him a hand. Super good. So the Bible and the Holy Spirit have something to say to us every day. No-win situations. Next time, I never thought about that until you read that, Paul. Abraham was in a no-win situation, wasn't he? Disobey God or sacrifice your son. And uh, boy, we face moments that certainly feel that way in our life, but the Scripture has something to say to us. So I want to encourage you to read along with us. Uh, let me give you a little, little bit of review if you haven't, uh, maybe if you missed some of the last few weeks or been on vacation or something. Basically, we've called this series All In because we've said that uh, James has written this letter to, uh, James chapter 1 says, the, um, the tribes of Israel that are scattered, the Jews that are scattered. So these folks are off their homeland, they're out of their culture, they're, be, they're oppressed, most of them are living in poverty. Uh, most of them are living in persecution. And so James sends this letter to them to basically say, Hey, go all in. I know now doesn't seem like the time. And I know that you're suffering. And I know that you're struggling. And I know this, this. But I want to encourage you that now is the exact moment to go all in with your faith. Don't hedge your bets. Don't wait to see what's going to happen. Go all in. So that's kind of what we've said the message of James is now. On a week-by-week on week basis, we've said it like this. If you're going to go all in, you need to know the difference between a trial and a temptation. That was part of chapter 1. Uh, the Last half of chapter 1, if you're going to go all in, you need to know the difference between hearing and doing. They're not the same thing. That's a major theme in James. Uh, last week, Pastor Joel did such a great job in sharing with you, if you're going to go all in, you have to know how much God hates favoritism and how much it breaks unity. Now this morning we're just going to say if you're going to go all in you have to know the difference between dead faith and living faith. So look at James chapter 2 and we're just going to read this passage together and then then unpack the difference in uh, dead faith and living faith. James 2, it's kind of a long stretch of scripture but James is a very contemporary sounding writer. Uh, So just follow along with me. James 2, 14 We'll read the 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? That's a rhetorical question. He's assuming the answer is no. That faith cannot save them. Can, uh, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, so he's drawing an illustration, just like that would be worthless, let me tell you another thing that's worthless. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, My greatest uh, fear this morning is that as we read the book of James, specifically in this section, and as I share with you, you are going to hear something I'm not trying to say, and you are going to hear something the book of James is not saying. Because of our church religious institutional history in America, we it's sort of what's in, the, what's in the groundwater unconsciously is that we, we come to Christianity with an unconscious belief and unfortunately it is reinforced in Christianity sometimes that our works save us. That our works produce salvation or our works produce faith. And I've got to be honest with you, that is one of the greatest uh, heresies one of the greatest practical heresies in the church, in the world, because every other major religion in the world teaches and believes that. And if we go there, we are not, we've lost our Christian uh, transformational power. What transforms us is that we're helpless and we have absolutely no ability to, to create faith or change our life or anything like that. So I want you to try to put that in the backdrop of your mind, and I'm going to come back to it as we wrap up this morning. I I, I want to dismiss that thought at the very beginning, because some of you, the whole time I'm speaking, because of your parents or because of your church or because of the theology you were taught as a kid, because of the legalism that you were steeped in, because of the guilt that you've experienced, you're going to be waiting for the other shoe to drop, and you're going to be looking for a list of things you ought to be doing better. That's what you're going to do. You're going to have a paper out and you're going to be, okay, here we go. And you're looking to quantify everything I'm saying into a list of action steps because since faith without deeds is dead, then you're going to say, I've got to work harder, I've got to do more, I've got to do better. And that's not James' point here at all. His point is to strike a contrast between living faith and dead faith. And the way he strikes the contrast is, is by using the test of works. So let's talk about that. What is dead faith? Well, James gives two pictures to explain what dead faith is. In the first one, he says, dead faith is like a Christian who sees a fellow Christian, James says, a a brother or sister in Christ, who is without clothes. Now, that could mean, in the Greek, completely nude. It could mean inadequate clothes. I mean, this person basically has... Not even enough to cover themselves adequately. That's all they got. So it's a bad situation either way. And this person was out daily food. That means a person who is so um, low on food resource that they are obviously, visibly, physically to the naked eye, they are malnourished. Because their food is so low. So you have a Christian who sees another Christian in this condition. And according to James, they don't do anything about it. So what they basically do is they respond with words like this, Go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does it do anything to help? And it makes you wonder how much in our language we adopt certain platitudes that kind of relieve. It's like the least we could do to relieve the bad feeling we feel about what another person's suffering, but we don't do anything to help. In other words, we just say, this isn't pointed toward the world. This isn't pointed toward, this is a brother or sister in Christ. This is a family member. This is a person going to heaven with us. And we look at them and say, you you know, in the church I think sometimes we learn to say, hey, praying for you. Did you really pray? I mean, did you really go home and pray? Did you on your way home? Did you... During your devotions, did you write their name down in your Bible? Did you put it on your phone as a, as a calendar notification to pop up that you would remember to really seriously connect with the Father for that person? Or is it just a platitude? Is it just a, it just a you know, it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever, you've been in a restaurant you're in one of those awkward moments, you know, and you just talk before you think, how many extroverts I got with me in the house? You talk before you think. That's me. Like I work it out as it comes out my mouth, and I go either go, "Oh, that was a good thought." I wish I'd have thought it on purpose, or or I go, "That was terrible." Why don't I think before I talk? So you're sitting in a restaurant, and and the waitress brings your food, and she says, "Enjoy your food," and you say, "You too," (laughs) but you're not going to eat, are you? Because you're at work, right? You just sort of throw it out there. You're you're at the airport, and the lady at the counter check says, "Have a good flight." You too. You go I'm stupid why don't I say stuff like that <laughs> I just panicked I didn't see it coming and I panicked and I just wished her the same thing I had that's sort of a brainless platitude that just wishes well but there's really nothing behind it so we say good luck hope things work out for you praying for you hey take good care of yourself with that not enough food or clothes but we don't do anything so here's what James is saying What he's saying is, he's using this as an example, he's saying, what good did those words do for the person who needed food and clothes? Those words did no good. In the same way, what good do our words of faith do for our soul if there is no action? What good do they do? Talk is cheap. Words are easy. Dead faith is like a cloud with no rain. It's like an orchard with no fruit. It's like a spring with no water. Dead faith is when the words are there, but the action is not. See, faith is a relational concept. It's not a religious concept. It's not an institutional concept. Faith is like love. It's relational. Remember when he said these three things remain? Faith, hope, and love? Faith is like love in its DNA. If a a man says that he loves his wife, he says, I love you, I will stand beside you, I'll love you the rest of my life, I'll give my life for yours, I'll protect you, I'll provide for you, I'll cherish you, but then after they're married, he neglects her. He won't work, he won't provide, he leaves her vulnerable and unprotected, he never hugs her, he never spends time with her, he never helps her at home, he never gives her gifts, he never serves her, he's never thoughtful of her. What would we say about his words of love? what would we say he doesn't love her he said he loves her but he doesn't love her and why would we say that because his actions speak louder than his words love is action right it has to be shown or it's not real Can you imagine, can you imagine if God said he loved us, but he never sent a prophet or a priest, he never worked through a king in the Old Testament, we had no spiritual leaders to look to, there was no Bible, there was no symbol of faith, there was no water baptism, there was no communion, there was no church, there was no missionary, there was no pastor, there was no Sunday school teacher, there was no kids church worker, there was no youth worker, there were no leaders, what if Jesus himself had never even come to earth, but God just sat in a big, white, fluffy chair in heaven and said, I love you. What would we say? No, you don't. Because love has to be shown. Love without action isn't love at all. Well, that's what dead faith looks like. Dead faith looks like faith that never expresses itself. I'm sure you've heard the saying, everybody in the South thinks they're a Christian. We live in a great geographical paradox. Birmingham is the most churched city in America. Shelby County is the most unchurched county in Alabama. So we live in a great Christianized paradox, which means people would say they have living faith, they would say that they're Christian, but many people who say that don't even know what that means. They would claim Christianity, but it wouldn't show up in their actions. Statistics tell us that in in American Christianity, in mainline churches, somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of people in those churches attending their churches are not born again. In spirit-filled churches, the number is about 17 percent, not born again. Research tells us about a third of American Christians are nominal, which means have No living faith. Have no born-again experience. I can remember uh, I ran into this inside my own family when I was uh, a teenager and I had met Jesus and my life had been radically changed and I'd been walking with Him for a while. I had become so burdened about my dad who's never known Christ and wasn't raised that way and... Uh, just never, never would, never would give in. And I remember I became so burdened for him. I would pray for him and pray for him and pray for him. And occasionally, I would muster up the strength to try to talk to him, ask him questions. And I can remember—I don't know, maybe so much was changing in our life. I don't know what caused it, but it just seemed like he felt um, some pressure inside to validate or to uh, justify where he was at in his own life. And so I remember talking to him and him saying. finally him saying, Hey, look, look, I believe all that. I believe in God. I believe Jesus is God's son and I believe all that. And I don't know, I don't know why and I don't know what happened. All I can remember is, is then I looked at him and said, Well, if Jesus was that important to you, why did you never teach me anything about him? Now, now that's a great Father's Day illustration, isn't it? If you say you have living faith, why then has it never shown up in any of your actions? Why does it not show up in your words? And I think because we live in a Christianized culture, we sometimes can be close enough to the real thing that we become inoculated to it. But this is, James, <laughs> this is James' message to these folks who are scattered abroad. And then he takes it a step further, which is even more uncomfortable, and he uses an illustration I would have never thought of. In verse 19 he says, You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's super profound to me that James puts the faith of demons and the faith of people who claim Christianity but don't have living faith in the same category. Now, that's, un- <laughs> that's unbelievable. And in some ways, he actually says he puts demons' faith above people who claim to be Christians but have no action. In the demons' case, case the faith at least produces fear. They shudder. In the Christian's faith who claims Christianity, but no actions are there, dead faith produces absolutely nothing, not even fear. Nothing. In our case, when we have dead faith, it produces nothing except maybe a false sense that we have faith when we don't. Dead faith produces nothing, so that's what dead faith is. Now let's look at living faith. What is living faith? James also gives us two pictures to explain living faith faith. The first one Paul talked about this morning is Abraham. God told Abraham that he was going to be the father of many nations, uh, even though he was too old to have kids. So supernaturally, God gives Abraham a son. Then in a test of faith, God tells Abraham the most bizarre thing. He tells him to sacrifice his son. But this was the promised child that was going to fulfill everything God said was true about Abraham's destiny and purpose. So this this is a great ironic thing that's happening here. At the last minute, Abraham's just about to sacrifice his son in in probably the greatest act of obedience in world history. And just as he holds the knife above his head at the last minute, God sent an angel to stop Abraham from going through with it and basically was, hey, I was never going to let you do it. But Abraham didn't know that was going to happen until the last minute. He just obeyed God. He didn't know what was going to happen. Now, why is Abraham a big deal? James is telling us, look, James is in the, in the New Testament. He's sort of near the end of the New Testament in our chronology. But he reaches all the way back to Abraham, who everybody in the Bible would recognize as the father of our faith. And he says, look, this connection between faith and works is as old as Abraham." It's been around for a long, long, long time. This is not a new idea. This is not a new theology. This didn't just come in town with Jesus. This didn't come in town with Paul. This didn't come in town with the New Testament. This didn't come in town with the American church. This is as old as Abraham himself, and this was God's plan from the beginning that faith and works would be connected. And so James uses Abraham as an example of living faith. And in verse 22 he says, you see that Abraham's faith, I believe God, I will obey God, I trust God, I will do anything God asks me to do. And his actions, go kill your only son, who you were too old to have in the first place, that was the child of destiny, were working together to make complete His faith was made complete by what he did. So what is living faith? Living faith is faith with action. Faith with action. James has 108 verses in the book. Do you know how many of those verses are a call to action? This is fascinating to me. Exactly 54. Half. Specifically half. Are a call to act. So faith like love is word in action. When Stacy and I were dating, and I lived in Memphis and she lived here, um, I, right before, a few months before uh, we were to marry, uh, I was in a terrible accident on the job, and I broke my foot, just shattered it. It just got crushed with a, a, a double size pallet jack, electric pallet jack, hydroplaned across a wet floor, and just and just literally demolished it. And I was in a cast for a long time. Actually, when we married, I just got the cast off before our wedding and had a shoe about three times the size it would be, just kind of inched it back so it wouldn't show up in the pictures that I had a Ronald McDonald shoe on. (laughs) And so um, right after, like I got out of the hospital and I was just starting to get around again, but I had to keep my foot above my heart. Um, You have to understand, she was so crazy in love with me. She couldn't contain herself. And so, yeah, right, it, it's Father's Day, I can, right? You, you had Mother's Day, it's my turn now. I, I can lie if I want to, it's all right. And so she, she wanted to see me, I wanted to see her, and somehow or another we talked my parents into driving me down with my foot elevated in the back of the car, like this, got a little sunburn. And uh, well, I went to her house, I couldn't move, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do nothing. I went and laid on their couch in the living room with my foot elevated above my head. And she made a little pallet on the floor beside the bed. And that girl lived there the better part of two days. And as I got to know her, I realized her love language was time, quality time. And she was doing everything on earth she could do to tell me she loved me. But see, we interpret that as love because it's expressed in a tangible action. Living faith is shown to be living faith because it produces some kind of action. It produces some kind of living reality in our life. Now, the second example that James gives is just as challenging, but it's a little more shocking, and I'm super glad he put it in here. This is the example from Rahab the prostitute. (laughs) So we've gone from Abraham Abraham, to Rahab the prostitute somehow. In a a move of complete whiplash. How can James possibly put Abraham, the father of our faith, and Rahab, the prostitute, in the same sentence, let alone in the same theology? But if it weren't for Rahab hiding two of Israel's spies and helping them escape, they would have been captured and killed. So this lady with a broken life takes a chance on God. She reaches out in faith. Not only did her faith save the spies physically, her faith saved her spiritually. And when her city was captured by Israel, who sent the spies, her, she was also physically uh, saved. Now, let me tell you this part. We don't know if it's true or not, but Jewish tradition says that Rahab married Joshua. If you don't know who Joshua was, Joshua was the leader of all of Israel. And so uh, tradition says, and I kind of hope it's true, it's cool enough to be true, that this former prostitute marries the king of Israel. And that her descendants were Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And we know for a fact from Matthew chapter 1, she is one of Jesus' ancestors at Christmas time. When we read the lineage of, lineage of Jesus, you know who's in there? Rahab the prostitute. Whoa. What is God trying to tell us? Why is a prostitute in this verse alongside the father of faith? Look, outside of God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, Abraham might be the most important person in the entire Bible. Rahab, on the other hand, is a nobody and is a prostitute living in the wrong country. She's on the wrong side of everything. Abraham's the father of faith. Rahab's not even a good mother. Abraham has massive respect. Rahab has a terrible reputation. Abraham is a man. Rahab is a woman. What is God telling us about living faith? He's telling us that he wants everybody to have it. Everybody. There's not a select few. There's not the good ones. There's not the better ones. There's not the preferable people. God wants everybody to have living with. Living it doesn't matter how high you come from or how low you come from. It doesn't matter what you do or do not have. So Abraham risked his son's life because of his faith. Rahab risked her own safety because she recognized that these men were God's servants. What is living faith? It is action. It takes a risk. It takes a step. It trusts when you don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's a person who will risk it all and put their trust in God. They'll let go of the familiar, the security. They will take a chance on God. It doesn't matter that she was a prostitute. It doesn't matter she had a terrible reputation. It doesn't matter that she could lose it all. She has living faith and the proof is her action. Living faith is, on the other hand, a person like Abraham who walks with God. Who has nothing to prove, who is recognized by all around him as the patriarch, as the legend, as the man who could do no wrong, who is recognized as a person of faith, who is called the friend of God, yet who, near the end of his years, comes to the most difficult test of his life and says, I don't care about retirement, I don't care about security. I don't care about legacy. I don't care what God said before. I will take a risk. I will believe God. And I will do what he told me to do. That is faith that's not dead. That is faith that is alive. And it produces something. So uh, how do do we kind of bring this back together as we wrap up this morning? The challenge with the message, as I said from the beginning is it can sound like we need to do more. If our faith is struggling, in other words, if you say, what do I do if I have dead faith in? What do I do if I have weak faith? What do I do? Well, the natural conclusion is, i got to get my paper and pen out, and i got to start making a list of stuff that I need to do, or I need to do better. Look, there's only one place you can get living faith. It's not from your works. You can only get it from God. God is the author and the perfecter, the Bible says, of our faith. He is the beginning and the end. So, the message of James is not, if you want to make your faith better, take your faith and add works. That's not the point. That is like not the point at all. And I know some of you have been waiting on that list, the entire message, and you've been waiting for me to lie to you and say, all right, now here's the six things. There's no list because there's no works that can give you living faith. Works prove that you have it. But they don't produce it. I want you to think about it for a minute. If our works could produce living faith, Jesus wasted his death on the cross. Why then did he die? If we could work it up, if we could fix it, If we could make it better, if we could prop up, if we could strengthen our own faith, why did Jesus die on the cross? It would have been a total waste. I just don't think God the Father wasted his only son's life. I think he died because he had to die. Because there was no other way. Living faith comes from God. So sometimes we wrongly believe that we have living faith because we go to church or because we own a Bible or because we work hard or because we're honest or because we try to take advantage of people. I guarantee you, you go find any nominal Christian in America and ask them, why do you think you're going to heaven? And they will start to list for you the things they do right. Right? Well, I'm a good person. I don't hurt anybody. I don't talk bad about people. I'm honest. I, I try to put in hard days of work. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat. I don't whatever. They will begin to list for you the th- because that is what their theology says. Unfortunately, we have people in our churches all across America that some of them that is their theology. I teach Sunday school, or I do this, or I do that, or I give, or I, I'm, I'm here every Sunday, or I, you know, I'm I'm producing and I'm cranking it out. And, and I just want you to know this morning, that's not James' message. None of those produce living faith. Only trust in God produces living faith. Now, when, when James says, faith without works is dead, what does he mean by works? I don't know if you remember, I think it's in chapter, uh, uh, last week, the first part of chapter 2, James references the royal law. When James says, "Faith without works is dead," what are the works that prove that your faith is alive? What are those works? He defines them in the rule law. What's the rule law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. How do you know that your faith is alive? Are you growing in your love for God and your love for people? Are you growing? Is your love for God growing, and is your love for people growing? Is it changing? Is it advancing as the years go by? Then you have living faith. Because living faith produces the works that matter the most. What are the works that matter the most? A deep love for God and a deep love for people. That's, it's, that, it's just that simple. So what happens in our spirit shows up in our body. If my spirit is alive, my body will reflect that. I will do good things, not because I'm trying to do good things, but because I was dead and now I'm alive. That's what we celebrated this morning in water baptism, a passage from death to life. See, you and I, unfortunately, uh, this message is reinforced in our mind everywhere we go in our culture, our consumeristic culture. We are taught over and over and over and over and over that we are physical beings, you even hear people, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a great spiritual conversation in our country going on presently, and you even hear this theology in the spiritual conversation. We are physical beings having a spiritual journey. You hear the term spiritual journey. As, as part of my, even in Christianity we've adopted it sometimes, on my spiritual journey, this happened on my spiritual journey, on my spiritual journey. Can I tell you something? You are not having a spiritual journey. You are not a physical person having a spiritual journey. You are a spiritual person having a physical journey. Amen. And I know that to be true because all our physical journeys lead in the same direction. we're all going to die. But the spiritual part of us will never die. I'm not a spiritual person on a physical journey. I, I, I am a spiritual person on a physical journey. My physical man's going to die, but my spirit, the Bible tells me, live forever. So you tell me which one we're on a journey with. This is what James is saying. The spirit is eternal. The flesh is temporary. What happens in the spirit resonates into the temporary, resonates into the physical. I'm going to ask our worship team to come and I just want to end here. A body without a spirit is a corpse. A spirit without a body is a ghost. Say it this way. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is theory. In other words, just doing good works is not going to produce any eternal fruit in our life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a martyr in, the, in World War II, uh, through, through all of the terrible things that the Nazis did, and he, he stood against them and tried to rescue as many Jews as he could, he said, "...only he who believes is obedient." And only he who is obedient believes. Good thought, isn't it? So our, our faith, if it's alive, produces works. But the works are a symptom of the reality. They're not the catalyst to faith. In other words, I can't take a person out here who's never been a believer and say, I tell you what, I want you to, to do our next serving uh, outreach with us. I want you to serve in kids ministry and I want you to serve in our next servolution and, and when we come and do our community picnic in the fall I want you to serve and what's going to happen is you're going to, your good works and I want you to read your Bible every day and I want, your good works are going to produce living faith in you. It's, it's impossible. I can't work my way into the kingdom. Jesus in the parables calls that people who try to come in the back door. But he says, he says I'm the door. There's only one door. It's only one way. So this morning I I, I was thinking, I'd like to pray with you. These are heavy issues. This this chapter is it's heavy. Heavy issues of faith. What do you do if you have dead faith? You turn to the author of faith. You turn to Jesus. And you just simply ask him, God, would you give me faith? Would you make my faith alive? Would you change my soul? And He will. That's the thing. It's it's actually much easier than we try to make it when we work. What do you do if you have weak faith? Like you have faith and it's alive but it's just like a small burning ember. Feed your faith. Galatians 5 says, They that sow to the Spirit will reap life from the Spirit. They that sow to the flesh will reap death from the flesh. So if you're... If your faith is weak this morning so to the Spirit So to the Spirit Follow the Spirit Obey I was thinking too about um, Abraham I don't know what it sounded like When God said Go kill your son I I don't even know how to I don't know how to understand that But I do know this We all have what I call Holy impulses In other words We have an impulse to do good But How many times do we ignore those? and I just want to encourage you every time you and I ignore a holy impulse an impulse to do something good and we ignore it we get to where we can't hear them we just drown them out in life and so man I want to encourage you let your spirit be sensitive when you have what I call a holy impulse an impulse to do something good you might say well that's cheesy that's corny I don't want to do that that would be awkward please do it man just do it don't leave anything on the table don't look back in your life and everything I had an impression to do something good and I left it it out there just do it trust me I've never, I've never, 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 never followed that impression and ever regretted it it's been awkward sometimes it's been uncomfortable, I've never regretted it I do have moments I've regretted when I had a sense to do something good and I didn't follow it and then this morning I wonder where you are Sort of on the nominal chart. If James were here this morning, he said there's two options. There's nominal, Christian, or all in. Nominal or all in. Like if you had to put yourself on there, where would you put yourself? Would you be like closer to nominal or closer to all in? Where would you be? So I want to ask you to stand with me this morning and I... Before we leave today, being Father's Day, I just want to have a specific uh, prayer uh, for our dads. And so um, I want to ask all the men in the building, if you'd come and join me here, I just want you to come and and stand here with me. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything. I I just want want to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to stand here with you. I want to look at you. I want to pray with you. I just want to pray for you. Can I tell you guys something as you're coming? I've never been more aware in my entire life how bad we need you. Man, we need you. Come on, come on in. Spread out that way. Keep spreading out. New dads, men, any, all men. Come on. Just guys. Hey, I want to tell you guys something. For every dad in this group, for every man in this group that is... Struggling to keep his marriage together. Like you're fighting it. There's conflict. It hurts. It's not what you thought it would be. I want to say thank you for fighting a good fight. I want to encourage you today keep fighting. For every man in this group who's a stepdad, thank you for taking on kids that maybe you would have never thought you would have had to take on. But you've stepped in there and you've served. And you've been a dad. I just want to say thank you. For every man in this group that you're the first Christian in your family. You don't have a Christian dad to look to and figure out how to do this. Nobody showed you the way. You're just sort of out there trying to figure it out yourself. I want to thank you. Man, men are so put down in our culture. I'm not here to put you down. I'm here to build you up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for trying. Thank you for changing your family legacy. Thank you for leaving a legacy faith that was not left to you. Thank you. For every man who is a single dad. And you, you, man, like your picture as a young guy of parenting was that, you know, a lot of that was mom's job. And then because of things that you never maybe wanted to happen, you've kind of been left in a nurturing role and, and you know, it's hard to figure some of that out. But man, thank you. You guys are heroes and when you come to this church, you'll be spoken to with respect and you'll be spoken over with honor and belief and integrity and faith. I'm telling you, God has put the answer to what we need in this church and in our family and in this county in your heart and and Jesus talked about a time that he would take the heart of the father and turn back to the children and so I just want to affirm today your role and your value and how, how much we need you we need you this church needs you this church needs men of God and men of faith and I, so many of you are fighting things that I couldn't even think to name. But because we're men and because we don't tell many people, we don't talk a lot, some of you are fighting private battles. Can I just tell you, thank you. Thank you for fighting. Thank you for not stopping. Some of you are fighting to provide. Some of you are fighting through all kinds of stuff. Thank you for fighting the good fight. And today I honor you. So I want to pray for you. I just want to ask God to bless you. I want to ask Him to help you. Would you just close your eyes? And, to, and today, and today, if there's anything that I said that you say that registered in my soul, I need God's help. It's a big deal for a man to admit he needs anybody's help. But today, if any of those register, you don't even have to tell me what you want. You just say, I, today I need God's help. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, today I need living faith. I need my faith to come alive. Then tell God that. God is the best father there ever was. And he'll love to meet you here. All you have to be is a son. So if that's you, I just want you to lift your hand at any of those. You say, I need that today. Did you just lift your hand? It's just a confession. That's all. It's a confession of need, which is a big deal for us guys. Now, I just want to pray for you. Just kind of, kind of take both hands and turn them up in a posture of receiving. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the men in this room. I thank you for what they represent. I thank you for their life. I thank you for their faith. I thank you for the fight that they put on. I thank you for the provision. I thank you for the gifts and the strength that you've put in them. God, I, I pray over them strength and life and living faith and health and authority and peace. And Lord's servanthood and the heart of the Father would become their heart. I thank you that you have placed inside of them everything they need to be godly, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus. So right now, I rebuke every thought of condemnation. I rebuke every thought that says, you can't be the man you want to be. You'll never be the man of God. It's a lie, and I call it out as a lie this morning. And I speak the truth that you are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. I call out the truth over you this morning. You can be, will be, strive to be the man of God God calls you to be. You can be your own personality, your own self, and still be the man God called you to be. So, Lord, I pray a covering over these men. I pray you would raise up an army of, of, of men of God that would serve in this city. And the spirit and the power of Christ would be on them. Help us, Lord, with our words. Help us with our actions. Help us with our motives. Help us with with our relationships. Help us in business. Help us in decision making. We claim today we need and have the help of God. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Would you give these men one great, big, resounding hand? And thank them.